Thank you so much for tuning in to Encounter AZ's podcast. We are believing that God is going to use this ministry to change your life. Now enjoy the message. You're in for a treat this morning. We have a, a special guest with us uh, named George Otis Jr. And, and he is a world-renowned uh, authority on transforming revival. And so God has just kind of put this together where he's going to share with us this morning. He, he travels the world and, and studies moves of God. And so and it's just interesting timing where the Lord would put this together this morning. So I'm excited to hear what he has to share this morning. So I want to ask you if you would with me for as he comes up, just give him an encounter welcome. He's here with his lovely wife. And so we just want to welcome him this morning. We're glad you're here with us. Good morning to all of you. This is, uh, this is not like Arizona. <laughs> but you'll take it, right? I spent most of my life uh, living in Seattle, so it uh, feels like home. Actually, living in, um, uh, well, my wife and I are living in... Um, Kansas City right now, uh, where we're connected up with uh, the International House of Prayer and uh, other good things. I uh, I've spent uh, the last. Uh, 22 years of my life, as Pastor mentioned, uh, traveling uh, around the world, uh, following after the moving cloud of God's presence, trying to understand why that cloud lingers over some communities and not others. Why are some places experiencing profound spiritual awakening uh, and others are not. And uh, during this period of time, uh, we have actually visited hundreds and hundreds of locations where the power and the presence of God has descended upon a community, not on a church, not on a prayer group, on a community or in a region and changed it dramatically. We read in the epistle to the Colossians that um, Christ has transformed everything, changed everything, made everything new. And I, for many years, just equated that with personal salvation, which it certainly does include. But I never thought that it actually encompassed our ecosystem or our economy or the social fabric of our communities. But we have seen precisely that, where God's presence has come and transformed a place comprehensively. This means that transforming revival has an address. 
It doesn't just change people, it changes a place. Uh, and it begins to exhibit the kingdom of God. This is exactly what Jesus taught us to pray. That his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, that's talking about an upgrade to the status quo. So when we pray that prayer, we should pray it with elevated expectation. Not just looking for religion as usual, but something profound uh, to take place. Uh, we have documented many of these stories on film. Uh, it's part of what are called the transformation series. Uh, those videos have been viewed by uh, several hundred million people today. And uh, it has, as people have watched them, it's tended to have a ripple effect. As people look at that and they say, well, if God can do that there, why can't he do that where I live, in my own backyard? And so it has spread from community to community to community. This is the way the early church grew. It's the way that the great awakenings in America's history spread as neighbors heard about something happening in the village or the town down the road. And they went to see. They moved into the presence of God and they begged for those embers to be carried uh, to their community. And it spread and it spread and it spread to the point that it began to transform the political and social landscape and economic landscape of the United States. Uh, we need that afresh. And the question is, whose responsibility is that? We, well, I would agree with you, but if that's true, then what's holding us back? We were talking about this at dinner last night. Um, if you ask almost any Christian congregation today, if they want to see revival, they'll tell you that they do. If you ask them if they think their community, their neighborhood needs revival, they will tell you that it does. If you ask them if God is capable of bringing about an awakening, they will tell you that he does. He is. And if you ask them if he wants to do this, there's a little hesitation sometimes there, but usually they will say, yes, he does. And if you ask them if the presence of God is essential to any kind of awakening or revival, they will all agree that that presence is essential. So if the presence of God is the missing element, if that's the thing that is needed, then the question presents itself, so what is it that attracts the favor, 
the attention and the presence of God. Now, if you ask Christian audiences this question, they always get it right. Always get it right. And there are many possible right answers here. We could say, it's holiness. It's unity. It's prayer. It's repentance, etc., etc., etc. They're all right answers. So, that tells us that we don't have an intellectual problem here. There's no intellectual blockage. But we obviously do have a problem because the presence of God has not been manifest in very many communities, at least in this nation of late, in the kind of way that we read about in Scripture, that we have documented in throughout history, and that we're seeing in many areas of the world today. So where is he? And why is he not here? Well, we do have a problem. It's not an intellectual problem. It's not an issue related to deficient understanding. It is related to appetite. Now, when we walked into this sanctuary this morning, each of us, we all came into this room with a hidden list of life appetites or hungers. And our lists are all different. Those things that we really hunger for. And on this list, there are two different kinds of hungers. There are our base appetites, which we all share. Hunger for food, hunger for sex, hunger for uh, sleep, and we could add several other things to that list that are essential to our survival as a species. So the only issue there, we need those appetites. We're designed to have them. Uh, they get out of balance sometimes. But in addition to those appetites, we have hungers that are related to our upbringing, to the way that we are wired to our personality types. So some of us came here this morning with an appetite for security. Others had a hunger for reputation or for control or dozens of other things. All of our lists are a little different. And there are dozens and dozens of things that we are constantly sorting and re-ranking on that inner list of life hungers or life appetites. But transforming revival takes place. It is launched the moment that our hunger for the presence of God trumps every other appetite on that list. So one of the things that I'm going to do is I'm going to leave with the pastor a, a little quiz for you to take at some point in the future. It's called the Life Appetites Quiz. And there's about 40 40 hungers, and you can give you some instructions. You can pray and be brutally honest with yourself. 
How would you rank those? And we're very, very quick to assume that at the top of our list will be our hunger for the presence of God. If that were true, this would be a very different kind of meeting this morning. Some of us have a greater hunger for sleep than we do for the presence of God. Or for food or for even the base appetites. So we need to my wife and I, we just redid this. It's something that every little while I think is a good thing to re, retake where we ask the Lord to help us take an inventory of what's in our heart and understand where we really stand with him. And I discovered like I did the previous time that I took this, that the hunger for the presence of God did not rank number one. In fact, this time it came in seventh place. Now that's sobering, it's kind of shocking, but it's real too, and at least now, I have right in front of me the issues that I need to deal with. I now know precisely what they are, and I know what can happen once I get that list back in the proper sequence. I think it's true probably for many, many church-going believers that their appetite or their hunger for the presence of God is probably down in the 20s. And there's a lot of these appetites that we, and you really, you measure things by where you devote your time and where you devote your passion. I believe for many of us, our hunger to spend time with our digital devices ranks higher than our hunger for the presence of God. So, really, our task is to pray this prayer. God, would you stimulate in me quicken in me an increased appetite for those things that are proven to attract your presence. Not very complicated, but we do need to carve out time to do that and do that seriously. Now, I could stand up here today and tell you stories. Um, stories are great. They're also time-consuming if you tell them well, and that's what I like to do. You get into all the texture and detail. I actually teach courses on storytelling, even back at IHOP. And um, we don't have that kind of time this morning. But um, I do want to take a few minutes that we have remaining and talk about the context in which we find ourselves. 
I don't know how aware you are of some of the current realities affecting uh, the emerging generation, younger millennials in particular, and Generation Z were born in 1996 and are in their teens and early 20s today. But uh, this generation is twice as likely as their previous counterparts to identify themselves as atheists. This generation only 48% of them, less than half, uh, is willing to identify themselves as heterosexual, meaning that more than half of this age group, this age cohort, will identify as something else. And increasingly, there are all kinds of other categories. This generation has the highest suicide rate of any generation in the history of this country. Over 40% of this generation's capacity for empathy has now eroded. Uh, Empathy is our ability to identify with the feelings of other people. And the reason that this empathy has eroded is because empathy is birthed in the place of solitude, where we practice self-reflection, meditation, prayer. We consider ourselves and we consider others, but today's generation cannot be alone with their own thoughts. 15 seconds in a line and you will see the smartphones come out. I've looked at lots of pictures. I've taken some where you see the evidence of this. We don't know really who we are, and we're afraid to be alone with our own thoughts. So project this 15 years into the future, and these people are going to be police officers. They're going to be politicians. They're going to be businessmen and women, and they won't know what empathy is. But also... We are now looking at upwards of 90% of this generation now leaving their faith by the age of 18. We are hemorrhaging our youth, the church. Hemorrhaging. They're flooding out. It's the ultimate vote of no confidence. And if present trends continue, within 15 years or so, 
the church across the United States will be a shell and will no longer be a meaningful voice. It will be a spent force within our society. This reality is crawling up our backside as I speak. We have run out of time to really pivot into this crisis and deal with it. So for months now, I have been pained by this. I have been working hard on a major report that will be released to a number of Christian leaders across the country in the next couple of weeks. And so it's hanging heavily on my heart this morning. And as we were talking over dinner last night, uh, pastors, um, I find it hard to talk about other things because if you truly are living in a crisis, it doesn't make sense to talk about other things. It's pretty evident, I think, to all of us that the social fabric of our nation right now is fraying, and it is fraying really rapidly. Offense now we have become the United States of offense. And the two things that really will eat our lunch in the Western world uh, are internal offenses and external distractions. These are the two things that are holding us back from becoming really the church and the meaningful force that God has called us to be. I really want to stand up here today and tell you all of the things that I think we need to do about this, but uh, we don't have time right now to do that either. So I want to zero in on one thing that I think is probably of all the things that I think God is calling us to adjust in our thinking and our behavior as believers today, this is probably the single most important one. Surveys today reveal that about a third of all Americans identify as spiritual, but not necessarily religious. They're not religiously affiliated, but they still recognize they have spiritual appetites and hungers and longings. And these folks, plus many others who still have some religious affiliation, they're longing for something more. They are spiritually homesick without realizing that that's what it is. One man described it as the search for something deeper Something that is not superficial, but is beautiful, ancient, and tangible. And many 
churches across our country today, uh, God to many people feels more like a philosophy than a person. And when it comes to the supernatural, increasing numbers of young people simply don't believe our claims, even if all we're talking about are physical healings. And that's supernatural, that's miraculous, but it's what I would call low grade in terms of what God is doing in many areas today, certainly what he's capable of doing. So we talk from our pulpits and from our television sets and through our writings. We talk about a great God, but we rarely, if ever, take the younger generation to places where they can encounter that God, where they can see him at work. Moving in true power. What we are offering in so many cases is uh, an in-house boxed program uh, or some carefully orchestrated vanilla mission trip. But there are those with keen intellects among us. There are those with higher spiritual expectations among us that clearly need more than that. They need an experience that is authentic, that is beyond routine, meaning it's unpredictable, and is risky in the best sense of the word. And the question really for us today is, do we have the goods? Can we offer that? Some of you maybe have heard of Oz Guinness. If you haven't, get acquainted with this man. He was a protege of the late Francis Schaeffer. He is a real prophetic voice in this nation today, a real thinker. He lives in Washington, D.C. He's associated with the C.S. Lewis Institute. And he said, the modern world, if we're not careful, tends to shift us from a supernatural worldview to a secular worldview, even in the church. Many modern American Christians are atheists unawares, practically and operationally. But our Lord lives in the power of the Spirit. He preaches in the power of the Spirit. He heals in the power of the Spirit. He delivers in the power of the Spirit. He discerns in the power of the Spirit. And He gives this gift of His Spirit to the twelve, to the seventy, to the whole of the church on the day of Pentecost. Paul determined to not come in his learnings and in his eloquence, but in the power of the Spirit so that his audience would know that it is the power and the presence of God that serves as the foundation for who they are Psalm 145, if you haven't read it recently, 
do so. Meditate on it. It's a powerful, powerful passage. And it is an admonishment. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. But for this generational faith chaining to work, it presupposes that the senior generation has first encountered these wonders for themselves. And all too often in the Western church, that's not the case. I know this. I travel and I speak a lot. And you talk to people about the mighty works of God around the world, and they've never heard it. They are interested, but you have to describe it in detail to them. They didn't even know that this sort of thing was possible. We can't share what we haven't experienced. And what young people, Gen Zers, need today are not imaginations. If we haven't had a personal encounter with this God and this handiwork, then our imagination kicks in. And we try to conjure it. What would it feel like? What would it look like? But the Bible tells us that God's power, and even in Psalm 145, it's so awesome, we can't even fathom it. And so if we're sharing out of our imagination, we are inevitably underrepresenting the reality of the true God. And the bad thing is that the next generation will grow up with those assumptions about God. They won't aspire to anything more because they don't think there is anything more. We've confined our descriptions about God and what he can do on the basis of our own prior experiences. So we're projecting our own reality We need to migrate from imagination to memories, to experiences, whatever it takes. Really, honestly, one of the smartest things that we could do this year is to see churches closing down for a week or two and the congregations moving to some place where God is moving in this kind of authentic power to go and absorb it, to feel it. You don't apprehend revival intellectually because it's not about dogma. It's not about doctrine. It's about presence. 
That's why you feel it. You sense that he is there, and it is awesome. And there are people who've gone to church for decades and have never really experienced the full measure of the kingdom of God on earth. I love the story very much of the first resurrection Sabbath Sunday uh, where the women who loved Jesus were going to the tomb to anoint his body with spices. And when they arrive on the scene, they encounter an otherworldly being there, an angel. And the angel asks the women, what are you seeking? Well, we're here to anoint the body of Jesus and who died and we love him and we just want to do this. And he looks at them and he said, ladies, he's not here. He has risen from the dead. Now, we read these passages devotionally, but I want you to put yourself in their position. You know he was dead. There's no doubt about it. You saw him dead. And now somebody's coming and telling you he's alive. He's risen from the dead. Now, what does that do to your your head. Think of these ladies. What are they? How do we even think about this? How do we process this? How do we take this in and deal with it? But it's what the angel said next. Three simple words, but among the three most powerful words found anywhere in Scripture. He looked at the women and he said, come and see. If we are going to make extraordinary claims to the next generation, to society around us, about a risen Lord, about a God that can transform land and sea and economies and everything else, then we need to offer some real proof of concept. We need to be able to tell them, listen, I know this is probably hard for you to process, but come with me, I'll show you. This is what we need to do. It is better than standing up and laying out some apologetics. Let's take them to hard, undeniable evidence that God is who he says he is. People don't want us today if we are just sameness in a fancy religious wrapper. Our neighbors don't want sameness, they want otherness. They don't want an enterprise. 
they want a surprise. Invasive, uncontrolled unpredictability. They want chills up their spine. They want to authentically encounter the supernatural. In the midst of God's thunderings on Mount Sinai that we encounter in the book of Exodus, Moses told the people, and you reread that passage, it's awesome. I mean, I, people's knees are shaking at all the things that were going on there, whole list of phenomena that they could see and feel. And Moses said to the people, God has come to place his fear in you that you might not sin. As you study these moves of God, they're just dramatic. And believers and non-believers alike who walk into that atmosphere are immediately dropping to their knees, asking God for mercy. Godly fear or reverential awe uh, can only be realized through an encounter with an otherworldly, extra-dimensional, supernatural reality. And the kind of casual, routinized religion that so many of us in the West experience, and it feels pleasant in certain forms of predictability, but it fails to produce this kind of spine-tingling, edge-of-the-seat unpredictability that is what delivers us from lesser distractions. If we had that, there were many times I've heard people talk about during these moves where they would get to the front door of the church and they would pause there. In the Hebrides, as I interviewed many people there in uh, homes and churches and in weaving barns that were the last survivors of the great revival that swept in between 1949 and 1953. If you're not familiar with it, we have some videos that you can uh, watch online that uh, depict a lot of this. Um, and we just felt it was critical to get these people's stories and testimonies recorded before they went to be with the Lord so they could continue to speak forth uh, this generation about the awesome works that has encountered them of God. And so we, we found as we would ask them questions that repeatedly they would turn away and their eyes would kind of just stare off into another place. And you realize they weren't there in the room anymore. They were back in the midst of these incredible encounters that so changed their lives. And they would say, often many of them, there was something about the singing. There was something about the singing. And I'm kind of baffled by this. And I'm all the things that you could say. Why would you talk about that? I'm sure that the worship during times of, of revival is rich and wonderful. They don't use instruments there. They sing in Gallic language and they only sing the Psalms. 
It's really wonderful to hear it. But it took a while before I realized that's not what they were talking about at all. They were talking about, and they would, they would basically have about 21-hour days during the revival where they were involved in work and worship and encountering the two church services every night, different churches, followed by home meetings. They called them cottage meetings. And they'd typically go to bed between 4 and 6 a.m., rest for an hour and get up, rest for two hours and get up and go to work. And when they would come to these meetings, in many of the places where they would be worshiping in prayer, you could physically see these flames in the, I mean, this is out in the moors on the island of Lewis, uh, way up north in the North Atlantic. And they would be hovering over these homes and churches where the people were gathering in the presence of God. And when they would come to some of these meetings, they'd get to the door and they would hear this incredible singing. But it wasn't human. It was an otherworldly singing as the angels had gathered around that place and were singing in a way that just make your hair stand up on end. And another church in Uganda after the people there had been forced out into the swamps by the undisciplined soldiers of Milton Obote and uh, Idi Amin before him uh, were shooting up the churches with rocket-propelled grenades and automatic weapons, had killed a number of the pastors, and the Christians fled into these swamps where they would spend the night up to their chests in water. Women had uh, their children wrapped on their backs, and this is where they learned to pray amongst the papyrus reeds, crying out to God in deep, groaning prayer at 4 a.m. And finally, as the Lord brought liberation to the nation and they came back to their churches, they spoke to me uh, about stopping again at the threshold of the church as they could see this swirling smoke or mist, the Shekinah presence of God, and they thought very carefully about whether they were going to take the next step and walk into that presence. Our job today in this nation, in our neighborhoods, intergenerationally, is not to change minds. It is to blow minds. By giving evidence leading people to evidence, describing the great and awesome works of the living God in our day. This is what we've got to do with this generation that is hightailing it out of the church. We've got to grab them and say, listen, I just before you leave, I need to show you something. Come and see. I believe that if we will do this, that we will see things turn around dramatically, and this young generation, this, these young people that want to be societal change agents, that are entrepreneurially wired and inclined, 
will be like those foxes whose tails are lit on fire and sent running through the fields. There is still time for us to get this turned around, but there's very, very little of it. And so now the challenge is out to all of us uh, to stand before God to give an account of our own appetites and hungers, to ask him if they're not in order, to help us place them in order. All that we need to know, all that we need to know about summoning the favor, the attention, and the presence of God has already been provided to us. We now need to make that our priority. Get up. Go someplace. Find out where God is moving. If you don't know, I'll tell you. I'll give you all kinds of places. We take people all the time on FIRE tours. This is an acronym that stands for First-Hand Inquiry into Revival Experiences. We're getting ready to take a whole group of workers, leading organizations working in the Ivy League campuses, Stanford University, to some places where God is moving in this kind of power today. That will happen. We're taking the leader of the Free Methodist denomination over Europe with us. Uh, a lawyer working for Exxon in um, Singapore is coming. And the whole idea is to blow their minds. And for them then to go back with memories with experiences and speak out of them. There's so much more texture in a memory than there is in an imagination. Well, Lord bless you. Uh, if you are interested in seeing any of these stories on video, um, you can go to our website, which is uh, the Sentinel Group, Sentinel Group, S-E-N-T-I-N-E-L group.org. And there's all kinds of ways that you can get access to that. And if you want to come with us, maybe as a whole church or group, we'd welcome you to do that. God bless. Awesome. Thank you, George. I hope you were as blessed by that as I was, because it's just been my heart for these uh, last 38 days, Bobby, is that what it is? That our city needs this. My family needs this. My kids need to see God move. In our generation, in my generation, I've grown up hearing stories of past generations, but I'm not satisfied with that. I don't know about you. And, and I just declare, Father, in the name of Jesus, we need a move, Lord. God, our city needs a move. Our families need a move. People sitting in this church this morning, they need a move. God, people watching online this morning, they need a move, Jesus. Father, we want to be people of your presence, God, who understand what it means to sit at your feet and experience you, Lord, and know you personally. And God, we don't only want to just sit with you. We want to be people that can grab others by the hand and say, come with me and see. Come and see. Come and meet Jesus. Come and see that it's not religion. It's not a, a rule book of things you can't do. It's not, it's not a, a behavior modification. Jesus brings transformation. And God, we want to be people that understand that. Will you stand up to your feet with me this morning? Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for your presence that is evident in the world today, just like it was on the day of Pentecost. God, I thank you that you love every person in this room this morning. 
and that your Holy Spirit is available today. God, I'm praying over every broken family, broken marriage, broken person, Lord Jesus, that's in this place this morning. God, I thank you that you've promised that you would come, Lord, and you do. You're faithful. So this morning, I'm just asking, Lord, as we begin to sing this song, God, that you would come in your glory and show up in people's lives, Jesus, people that felt like they needed to give up. Lord, do what only you can do, Jesus, because we will not give in, Lord. We will not give up, Father. I just believe and declare that this is a new season where we're taking back our city from the enemy. We're taking back our families from the enemy. I'm taking back my joy from the enemy and my peace and every other thing that he thought he had his foot on. Just like Abraham, you're promising him everywhere you set your foot, that will be yours. And I'm putting my foot on my family this morning in Jesus' name and saying they belong to the Lord. It was my promise. And I declare the promises of God are still evident and still true today as they were when he made them. Father, we declare your word is true, Lord. Your word is true in our lives today, Father. We want to experience it. We want to know you, Jesus. Will you lift up your hands? Let's worship him for a minute before we go and just say, Jesus, we need need transformation in our lives. We need transformation in our families, in our workplaces, in our economy, in our city, in our nation. Come on, worship him with me.